Well, it is true, and it's never been truer than in cinema right at this very moment. What's old is new again. My name is Sean Peter Budge, and I'm here for another episode of Too Long Don't Listen to dissect The Matrix Resurrections, the fourth film in The Matrix franchise, recently released and being enjoyed across the world as we speak. Um, we're going to have a bit of a chat, obviously, about the film in general, what I liked, the context of its release, the context of the previous films in the franchise's release. Uh, how do we get to this point in time and obviously um, you know, if it's good or not and worth seeing or not. So without further ado, we'll get into the, the plot uh, of the film just as a bit of a, an appetizer uh, to explain um, what the film's about, how does it play out. Um, there will be some spoilers throughout the episode, so please do bear that in mind um, if you are interested in being completely spoiler-free and haven't seen the film yet, sort of try as best I can to not spoil sort of so many beats or so many moments um, for those of you that you know that don't want to be spoiled. Uh, but if you have seen the film, obviously you can listen without fear that, that things will be ruined for you or, or the like. So um, basically the plot <coughs> is uh, 60 years after the events of the original Matrix trilogy, Neo finds himself living life consumed by feelings of deja vu and grappling with the memories of a past that feel like more than a vague recollection. After his defeat of the rogue program Smith, an encounter that seemingly killed him, the machines on the say-so of a program called The Analyst save and resurrect both Neo and Trinity and place them into a new matrix. Over the course of many years, The Analyst recognises that the pair are unique anomalies and by putting them at the heart of his new matrix, he'll draw exponentially more power to the machine's grid than a standard human being. Further, keeping them tantalisingly close, though separated, and in a state of despair, is the key to stabilising this new digital world. Obscured to everyone in the Matrix by a digital avatar, and with his code hidden from anyone who would be trying to find him, Neo has been fed the lie that he is, in fact, a video game designer, his previous life reimagined as the plot of a successful video game series. And any inclination that rejects that as fantasy is quelled by a steady diet of blue pills. Trinity, similarly lives a confused life controlled by the say-so of the analyst. And in the real world, a new group of heroes search for Neo within the relaunch matrix, suspicious that the game designer Thomas Anderson is in fact Neo and freeing him suddenly becomes their imperative. When this group find and free him, his leaving the matrix creates a destabilizing effect that, to fix, is as simple as a restart of the system to a previous version. But the villainous analyst believes that this isn't necessary and that Neo will return if baited by a threat that failure to do so will result in Trinity's death. Neo suggests they let Trinity decide her own fate. Choice, after all, was always a concept at the heart of these films. If she decides to stay, Neo will return to his pod and the Matrix, but if she wants out, if she chooses to leave, she must be allowed to. So there's the basic plot, um, sort of the skeleton of the plot and how it kind of plays out and what the stakes are and how it's all set up. Um, and before we get into the, the Resurrections, the film itself, I kind of just want to have a bit of a chat about, as I said off the top, you know, context and, and framing and why these films were popular and the fallout from the sequels and, and their place in pop culture and criticism and why maybe they were received as they were when they were. So, I mean, the first one comes out <clears throat> in 1999 and that was the summer of The Phantom Menace and, and those two series, in a lot of ways, are inexorably linked the Star Wars prequels run from 99 to 2005, and the Matrix series runs from 99 to 2003. Obviously, the two sequels 
Reloaded and Revolutions come out. I think May was Reloaded and Revolutions was November of 2003. But the first one comes out in 99 and it was new and it challenged and played into this rapidly evolving online or computer, you know, internet culture. It was genuinely clever and it, it was uniquely kind of presented on the screen. It was fresh. More importantly, it actually kind of stole... The Phantom Menace and Star Wars is Thunder. That was the summer of Star Wars, the summer of the Phantom Menace. And the Matrix came along and sort of blew everyone away in a manner that people were expecting Star Wars to do. And that's obviously not the film's fault, but it's just how it played out. And then because of that, it was always inevitable that they would make more. The first one was clearly part of a story, whether that was intended to be the case or not, whether they'd future-proofed it against sequels, or the possibility or opportunity of sequels or not, the first film ends very much in a place that is ripe for further exploration and, and explanation. Yes, Neo, our protagonist, has realised his destiny and he's escaped the Matrix. But what of everyone else? What happens to them? What happens to the world after you know, he flies off at the end of the first one? Well, the world continues on, both in and out of the Matrix. The first one is basically a battle... But the war would rage on and the following films would obviously address that. They'd gotten their saviour. Could he now turn the tide? And ultimately, I won't bury the lead, Reloaded and Revolutions aren't actually that bad. They're better than 99% of the crap that came out in the aftermath of The Matrix and aped it. They're better than most popular cinema that gets released then and now. They're just not as good as the first one. And that's an affliction endured by most sequels, to be brutally honest. The shock and the awe and the surprise and the wonder, everything that was new and fresh and fun, well, it can't be that again a second time around. Sequels are the hardest film to make because you've got to have something new to say. You've probably got to try to say it in a new way. You've got to add meaningfully and interestingly to a story that if you've done well enough to get a sequel... Most people liked and, and bought into the first time around. You've got to make that better. Complicating this is the era that those films arrived in, both Star Wars and The Matrix. They arrived at a time that audiences were particularly prickly, cynical and snarky about cinema, let alone big-time sequels. I mean, just look at the reaction to, to the Star Wars prequels, let alone The Matrix sequels. And a consequence of the first age of internet film criticism was that films couldn't just be good or bad anymore. They had to exist at either end of the spectrum. They had to be defining or generational or the absolute worst thing you've ever seen. A complete abomination, an absolute joke of a film. It's the, the worst film I've ever seen in my life. It's horrendous. And you go, re realistically, no. The Star Wars prequels, the Matrix sequels, are they as good as the films that preceded them? No, they're not. Are they unwatchable garbage? No. I think people need to see more films if they think they're as bad as it gets. But people no longer left the theatre and spoke cordially with those they'd seen the film with, passionately perhaps, what they liked, what they didn't like, think about it, go back and forth. They went home, and rather than collecting their thoughts, they just spewed every incoherent musing out onto the internet immediately without really thinking about what they'd seen what it was saying, how it was presented. The criticism had to be immediate 
because that's what they thought the platform demanded of it. That's what they thought the opportunity of the platform was. And it became a bit of a competition to see who could break the film's failings, whatever they might be, perceived or otherwise, down in the most savage way. <clears throat> it was sort of the inverse of, you know, you want your, your film review, your, your quick quote on the film poster, pumping it up. It went, it's the inverse of that. I want to put something out on a film board or <clears throat> you know, Twitter now that is so cripplingly, scythingly, just brilliant art, just destroys this film. So you can get some likes, so you can get some retweets, because people, for whatever reason, want it to be awash in the cynicism. And it's just it's just silly. And then, obviously, a further consequence of this discourse is that popcorn films, because they're the most seen, they sell the most tickets, make the most money, but because the conversation became louder, <clears throat> it wasn't that more people... It wasn't that more people were talking about them. They were just more people were talking to each other about them because of the internet. Because of that, these these types of films <coughs> were elevated to high art. They were elevated to a level of importance they really shouldn't reasonably occupy. And because of that, all of a sudden they were criticised like they were high art. You know, they're, they're entertainment. You know, it's kind of like looking at a show like Married with Children through the same lens you would something like Mad Men or The Sopranos. You don't. You adjust your expectations. You adjust the critical gaze. You do, unfairly or otherwise, you do move the goalposts because from a show like you know, Mad Men or Sopranos or The West Wing or whatever you want to talk about, well, they're saying something a little bit more important. They're a bit more subtle. So it's fair that your expectation of the writing and the performance and all that is a little bit higher. And it's a reason they win awards. And that's not to discredit those more popular culture-type sitcoms, which do take you know a level of um, ability to make and make well. But all of a sudden we had these popcorn movies being treated as incredibly important works of art. And it was just unfair. It was just a bit silly. Like, I've been guilty of this in the past on occasion, but these films were spoken about so passionately by so many people and in such an unmoderated environment that the conversation came to mean more than it really should. Oh, that big summer tentpole movie wasn't very good. Okay, well, what's the next one then? If it's good, great. Celebrate it. Enjoy it. Love it. Watch it again. But if it isn't that good, that's entirely okay. Look, I've been disappointed by the Star Wars sequels in the last couple of years, so I have been. It's a bit hypocritical of me to be sitting on this, it's not quite a high horse, maybe it's a pony, but to be sitting up on this and saying these films were unfairly judged, unfairly spoken about, unfairly dissected. And I own that because I, I was disappointed, but disappointed in the missed opportunity for them to be brilliant, not salivating in the fact that they weren't. So maybe that's an important distinction, maybe it's not. And it actually kind of revealed, especially nowadays, how many people don't actually see a lot of movies? Because as I said off the top, if they think these films are, oh, there's as bad as it gets off, this is terrible, it's the worst film I've ever seen, they're not watching many movies. Because these films are so far from the bottom of the barrel 
it's ridiculous. Whatever you want to say about them, no, they're not great. No, they're not perfect. They're not. They're not as bad as movies get. <clears throat> and if you think they are, watch more shit. Go on Netflix. You'll find a dozen films immediately on the home screen that have less to say and are worse and are more slapdash and are less relevant, less important, less valuable. But those those films know what they are. They're stocking stuffers on a streaming platform because it needs to have content to keep the wheel turning. That's what it is. Everyone owns that. But when you started going to see these big movies at the cinema, they took on this incredible life that they probably didn't earn, let alone deserve. So, I mean, I've long had this theory, we're just making this about Star Wars, which is unintended, but the worst thing that ever happened to Star Wars as a series is The Empire Strikes Back because it's a genuinely brilliant movie. It takes its predecessor and it improves upon it in every conceivable way and it sets a such a high watermark, not just for Star Wars movies but for sequels and for blockbusters, that people still talk about it with reference and reverence about is it as good as Empire? How does it stack up against Empire? Well, very few films, let alone Star Wars movies, very few films stack up favourably against Empire. It is one of the best films ever made, popular, you know, blockbuster cinema or otherwise. Remove the genres, remove all those distinctions. It is brilliant. So now, not just Star Wars films, but a lot of films get compared to this incredibly high watermark that, well, they're probably not going to measure up to because it's been 41 years and very, very few films have. That's <clears throat> it's the high score on the video games, the high score on the Frogger machine. It's, it's just fantastic. So ultimately, these films are designed to appeal to as broad an audience as possible you know, for a number of reasons. They're relied upon to make the bulk of the studio's money, which then pays for other things, other films. And because of that, they can sometimes be pretty safe. They can sometimes be pretty conservative. They can sometimes be a rehash, a reboot, a remake. And that's what we're going to talk about a bit later. They can sometimes not offer the audience what the audience doesn't know they want, if that makes sense. They want a new adventure. They want a new perspective, they want things to change. So what we get instead is a lot of films that are very same-ish. They have the same beats, they have the same moments, they have the same basic structure. So you end up getting a bunch of films in a series that all look and feel the same because that's just safe. You like the first one, so we'll just we'll just reskin that one and we'll give it to you again and you'll probably like it still, whether you are aware or not that it is basically the same movie. And that is different too, I just want to say, to recurring beats, that the Star Wars films have often had these recurring beats that are there for um, symmetry, and they're there for callbacks, and there to stress upon, you know, in, in, the, in the monomyth, the idea that the hero's journey, no matter who the hero is, throws up the similar challenges and throws up similar trials. And then the fun of it is, the difference of it is, how does that person react to those trials? Luke rejects the dark side, his father didn't, that sort of thing. They they faith the same fork in the road, but the path or the choice is different. And the Matrix is clearly all about choice. But I think the other role of these types of films too that sometimes gets overlooked a little bit <clears throat> and can sometimes be to the detriment of the film itself because they're ahead of the curve somewhat is 
a lot of the times they're actually relied upon to drag cinema forward. Like the first Matrix had this visual language and a style that was borrowed from or really heavily inspired by Eastern cinema and, you know, particularly anime, which in 1999 wasn't as excessive or prevalent or known in the West as it is today. Um, you know, you got like stuff, you know, whether it be Ghost in the Shell and Akira and all these things and um, to a lesser extent, you know, Miyazaki and, and that's that sort of animated style and and the way those films are constructed. But because it wasn't quite as well known, it sort of gets passed off as something new and fun. And as I said, and you had Bullet Time, you know, which was a cool gimmick and the way in which they they realised it is the kind of filmmaking ingenuity that I love. You know, they they would surround the subject with dozens of cameras that would each fire. So you don't move the camera around the subject, but each shot is taken from a different camera and then stitched together to create the illusion of movement. And because it's shot at a higher frame rate, they can manipulate time. It's fantastic. Like, it's it's really clever, and it all flows down to, oh, I think I might have spoken about it in the past, technology that they developed to make these movies all goes down the food chain and ends up in consumer products eventually. It's the same way that Formula One will use a particular technology, they'll refine it, and it ends up in a road car. Like, it seems fanciful, fanciful you know, but it's true. And, you know, one of my favourite... Um, you know, tweets in recent memory was Ryan Johnson, who obviously had his own battles, shall we say, in the fallout from The Last Jedi, which is, continues to polarise people, but he was asked about the prequels. And he was asked to, you know, say something nice about the prequels, not that he would bash them generally, but to say something, you know, positive about the prequels. And one of the things he said was really um, quite brilliant. He said that they are responsible for, quote, spearheading nearly every technical sea change in modern filmmaking over the past 30 years because that's what these films do. The prequels drag cinema and the filmmaking technique into the 21st century. They were the first film shot on digital tape. Now, pretty much every film is. Most films are. They led to the development of camera tech, which started off as heavy and cumbersome equipment and now just be found in the body of a mirrorless at your local TED store. You know, more recently they've developed for The Mandalorian this thing called The Volume, which started off as a tech kind of looked at for stuff like Avatar and uh, The Jungle Book under Favreau used it, The Lion King under Favreau used this sort of really... It's actually, it's extraordinary. There's a Mandalorian making of special on Disney Plus that explores it. I strongly recommend you watch it because it is jaw-dropping. Rather than use a green screen, they use these fully interactive... LEDs and it's like it's what's funny about it is it's a rear projection you know an idea, an idea that is decades old an idea that was used for for decades since they you know they they'd obviously project the image of you'd be sitting in a car and they'd project the image of the street you know through the back window so you're sitting in a set that's what this basically is they project the image of these vistas and these sets which then move in time with a camera movement you know it is phenomenal. It adjusts lighting. It is unbelievable. But it's an example of what these films actually do. They move the needle in a lot of ways culturally, but they also move the needle technologically. And at the end of the day, as impressive as all that stuff is, as impressive as the artistry is to bring them to screen, 
the sheer scale of them, the the men and women behind the scenes making it come to life, you know, the pre-production work, the post-production work, all the all the moving parts because there are so many on these very big films. They are entertainment. They're not art. And I don't mean to discredit any of the people working on it because some of the greatest, you know, art, you know, these days I've got, I've got all these books and I love connecting, collecting, sorry, um, these art of Star Wars books and, you know, art of Harry Potter does them and then June did one and these beautiful books just filled with all the production art. And it is jaw-dropping. It is beautiful. My Ralph Macquarie Star Wars collection book is just breathtaking, just page after page after page. But at the end of the day, when it all comes together, it's about entertaining the public. So you think about there isn't a single moment in any Marvel film this year or other of technical filmmaking quality to, just as an example, to rival, there's like a 90-odd second tracking shot in the French Dispatch, which I spoke about a couple of weeks ago. And that's fine, because that's not what we're watching these types of films for. They're made as quickly as possible because they're very expensive to make and they already cost a lot more money than a film like The French Dispatch. They don't have time to put together and meticulously frame, meticulously pace and just do this tracking shot, plan it. You know, the production design and the set design has to compensate for these camera movements and the movements of the actors and the depth of the frame. They don't have the time to make that shot. And that's fine because that's not what the audience is there for. But if you want to appreciate those shots like Joel Cohen's done The Tragedy of Macbeth, which I'm hoping to see in the next couple of days. Not everyone's cup of tea. No Shakespeare, black and white, a lot of impediments to a general market. But watch the trailer. Just watch the trailer and just marvel at how beautiful a film it is. That takes time. That takes time to do. It takes time to light. Performance, generally speaking, you've got uh, you know, Denzel. And, and he's not going to be sitting there cranking through the shots, cranking through the takes, through the scenes, because they just need to get to the next one. They're going to be mulling over everything. They're going to be doing weeks upon weeks of rehearsals. They're going to play it out like it's an actual stage play. That's art. And it knows it is, and it's existing as such. These films, Star Wars, The Matrix, the Marvel films, they aren't. But they're treated like they are, which is unfair. So the question ultimately is, did we need a third Matrix sequel you know, 18 years after the last? Well, the answer is no, we probably didn't. But I'm firmly of the belief that you can make a sequel to any film you want to, provided it has something worthwhile to say about the previous films, the characters, or the world, and it gives us something new and interesting to think about them or to observe about them. You know, you think about a film like Trainspotting 2. Trainspotting 2, sorry in its relationship with the first. It's a sequel made 20-odd years after the original, and it owns that kind of creative challenge of how do you make a belated sequel? Where are these characters? Who are these characters? And Trainspotting 2 has got this really powerful message that you know people don't change. People are who they are, for better or for worse. They don't change. They might evolve subtly. They might get a new perspective. They might get some maturity. But deep down how they are when you knew them 20 years ago, probably how they're going to be today, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, maybe you find out the hard way. And that film was beautiful because of it. 
because it had something really important and you know profound and interesting to say about how people are how they are and why they're that way so it was really really good so do we need another one do we need another sequel to anything provided it's new and provided it's interesting of course but therein lies the problem enough of this is new enough if that makes sense enough of this movie is new enough as it is with all soft reboots which are all the rage every ip worth getting you know re-released or reskinned or remade well they all get that treatment because the kids who loved them as kids are now adults with kids of their own so the studio goes from having one customer to having a customer who's created more customers you know so you get star wars you know or a new hope is remade as the force awakens it's not a new film like it's not a fresh take it's a remake but just subtly changed enough. A few moving pieces moved around. You get Terminator. is remade as Terminator Genesis. You get Transformers. Even something as recent as that is rebooted as like Bumblebee. Which is actually not bad. It was basically just E.T. with a car. You get Ghostbusters in 2016. You know, Paul Feig's Ghostbusters. Which is just a remake of the original film. And it's quite brazen too. Like it's really similar. How much of that was to do with what was going on with Star Wars, you know, who knows, not sure. Turnaround time's pretty tight, so it might not have been. Jurassic Park, that's remade as Jurassic World with a few cosmetic differences. And a lot of these films have redeeming qualities or outright enjoyable in a particular kind of way, but they're not giving us anything new. That the film we already knew we liked, repackaged, refurbished, remade. You know, I had this thought a while ago, I was watching one of them, and I thought, these films are like... You know, leftovers for lunch. You really liked what you had for dinner last night, but here's more of the same, it's just not as fresh. And it all packs into this idea of nostalgia, what's old is new again, as I said off the top, and how do we react to that? How potent can they make the nostalgia? How engaging can they make the old thing feel now? So here we are. Key Creatives return. Lana Wachowski's back, Keanu Reeves is back, Carrie Ann Moss is back, um, Jada Pinkett Smith has a role, obviously, uh, whereas some don't. So Lily Wachowski doesn't return any capacity, Joel Silver doesn't return the producer, and Lawrence Fishburne um, doesn't return either, although the character of Morpheus does um, in, a, in an interesting way, in a, in a clever kind of way, which is good. So what we get is a bit like one of your favourite bands has sort of had some time away, Maybe they're a four-piece, and they come back, and there's two or three of the original members. You know, there's there's enough of the original members there to kind of, yeah, they are still that band, aren't they? And they're going to play all the songs I know they, know that I like, and I know that they can play. But is it the same? It's near enough to the same, but it's not quite how you remembered it. So, did I like the Matrix Resurrections? After that, on the back of a Another long ramble, but hopefully you've stuck with me. Um, probably. Certainly more than I thought I would. But that may be until it runs out of a bit of steam. And, and the initial framing and the reintroduction of the world and the characters and a bit of the mystery as to how and the why we're here is actually quite engaging. And more than that, what it has to say about making a film like this 
is actually quite refreshing. It's quite sort of, oh, did you just say that? That's, you've just said that about this movie. Hmm, interesting. So I think it's quite good until it moves beyond that initial setup. And the initial setup actually takes, the film goes for probably two, maybe 220 without credits, two hours 20. And for maybe 90-odd minutes, it's kind of all set up and reintroducing the world and a bit more world-building. And that stuff's quite fun. And then you sort of realise, we have to kind of wrap this up, don't we? We have to move to the point now where the, the story the tension of the story has a payoff and has a climax and the characters have a decision to make and that decision affects everything we've seen to this point and everything that's going to happen after the last frame, you know, goes to black. So the chicken salad stuff, which if you knew is obviously positives, we do chicken salad and chicken shit. So chicken salads are the goods. Um, I really, really liked the meta element of the film and the commentary coming from... Lana Wachowski, the writer-director, was a lot to do with creators and their art. And and it reminded me in a number of ways of something like um, the movie Chef, which was written and directed by John Favreau and came on the heels of a pretty frustrating experience that he'd had making Iron Man 2. There's a really good um, video about this on YouTube. Um, I wish I could remember exactly what it's called. But if it's this really good dissection of the film is a big metaphor for Favreau having to deal with Disney's over, over, overreaching and creatively sort of complicating things and compromising him and asking he do things a particular way to the detriment of the film that he's trying to make and he's feeling as though I'm the one that has to carry the can of this movie not being as good as I want it to be, not because I couldn't make it happen, but because you kept forcing things into it studio, producers, everyone kept on just making it too big. And it's this really fun little film, Chef, that ultimately he plays a chef who feels as though his creativity and his potential with putting together this menu um, is stood upon by the restaurant's owner, played by Dustin Hoffman. Oliver Platt plays a critic who comes in and is just sort of ho-hum about the meal and Favreau's idea is you don't get it. You don't get what it takes to put all this together. You don't appreciate it. You don't appreciate the art to make these things. You just criticise them, as I've been talking earlier. And it's a really good little movie. And he goes off and he makes a has a little food truck. And it's a metaphor for the film we're watching. It's quite clever. And the other one that actually reminded me of too was um, a film called Seven Psychopaths, which was made by a man by the name of Martin McDonough, who hit it big with a film called In Bruges, which was a brilliant, brilliant movie, and kind of catapulted him into the consciousness of Hollywood. And his follow-up is this really fun wink at the camera knowing, I've got to follow up this big success. They want something quickly. I don't have anything to give them. What the pressure is, I've got writer's block. And the the film plays out and has fun and really leans into that, which is is really good. Um, And I suppose, too, the other element I had (coughs) written down was, as is all the rage now, more recently happens quite a bit a little bit of Back to the Future 2 or Avengers Endgame about how the film interacts with the previous films within the framework of its own story how it calls back to previous setups or scenes Um, and that that is sort of a fun kind of 
element of maybe watching these films that whilst it is perhaps getting a bit worn out now, when you're watching in a Back to the Future 2, it's a really brilliantly clever sort of framing device that we're going to exist within the first movie and see it from a different perspective. And in a film like this, again, it plays out in a clever way, which I think is important. You can't just reimagine or re- you know um, remake certain elements of those first movies and just put them into this film on their own and expect them to work. So there's a bit of thing at the start where we see some... Re- basically, it's repeating code that Neo is obviously hidden in the Matrix, but being a big computer program, there are aspects of repeating code and aspects of looping code, which isn't perfect. You know, so the Matrix has Neo trapped again, and this idea that he was suspicious that not all is as it seems, so he builds a simulation himself within it, hides it in the Matrix, that basically loops or runs events of the other movies which act as kind of breadcrumbs for people to find him or to free him, as happened in the first movie. Morpheus and Trinity and co. were looking for him in the first film. So he places these loops, which we see very off the top of the film, um, which the character Bugs, um, who's sort of like the new kind of Morpheus, um, and she's, she's quite good. She finds this and recognises this, this is a hint to come and find this guy. So that was really fun. That was really quite good. And then... Further to that, it was fun that the program that acts as Morpheus is kind of coded to resemble both Agent Smith and the older Morpheus because Neo has a relationship with that pair and in creating this new visage of his mentor, he sort of combines the two. And I think, once again, further to that idea and this meta notion, the film has fun playing with not just the characters and their memories, but the audiences as well. How much can you recall sitting there watching this movie? How much of the way things played out in those original films can you remember? How vividly can you remember it? Did it happen the way you remember it? Sort of a cool idea. This sort of this is this is sort of how it, is this how it happened, or is it close enough to how it happened? Which is a bit of fun. Um, just some examples of the meta stuff, which is good. Um, there's all this stuff of you know. The setup is that Warner Brothers have asked Thomas Anderson and the game company to make another Matrix game, make another game in that series that was so popular. And there's all these conversations about why not just use the old code to make something new? So it's a fun old you know, nod to the meta opening and the the very existence, the very existence of this film, the very existence of this film coming back. And then that Warner Brothers are sort of saying to to Neo. Um, we're going to make a sequel with or without you. So the creators talking about their creation that, well, I was done with it. I told the story I wanted to tell with it and they're being told by the brass that own it, well, no, we're not done with it. We think that there can be something else made with it. We're not going to tell you what that is, but we want another film. And if you do it, great, you can do it. If you don't do it, we'll just get someone else to do it. So again, creators, authors, how much of the story do they own? What kind of, or how how strongly do they, how strongly do they believe in that ownership and creative? How strong do they think? Look, I've 
oh, I've got to do this because if I don't do this, someone else will do this. I prefer to do it. Therefore, I get to do it my way and hand it over to someone else. And some people can walk away from that. James Cameron did. He walked away from Terminator, still feeling a, a level of you know, creative ownership. And he had to kind of come to terms with the fact, I think he did, but come to terms with the fact that this isn't my story. My story's been told. What people make of this is up to them. What I make of it is something together, altogether different. Um, but yeah, the idea of corporate interest governing creativity. Um, and I think there's a bit where, just trying to remember if he says it, if Neo says it, that um, you, know, you said the story was over and then someone goes, well, there's always more stories. So the story never ends. The Matrix Revolutions ended, but the world didn't. So what happens after that? And that's not not interesting. That's not not worth potentially looking at if you can come up with a good idea. And then I think there's a bit too where he goes that they're talking in this big sort of big, you know, this big get-together, the, the game designers, and this idea of someone goes, you know, it can't be just another reboot. It can't be the same as what it used to be. And someone says, why not? You know, reboots sell. So again, you've got this idea that Neo just like the Wachowskis, the authors are trapped by and inside their creation. It's a really interesting commentary on the process, and Neo in so much is an avatar for his creators, and in this case, Lana Wachowski, someone says, what's it like being famous? And he responds, we kept some kids entertained. It's that fun thing where you go, no, you're talking about the movies, which is, which is pretty cool, which is pretty interesting, sort of really owning it. And then later in the film... The analyst, played by Neil Patrick Harris, uh, who's a fench, a fence, uh, <coughs> essentially a stand-in for the architect, delivers a really scything like critique of the Hollywood system, or at least that's how it plays out. When he says to Neo, who wants to leave the Matrix and wants to be out and free again, he says, "The sheeple like my world. They don't want sentimentality, freedom, or empowerment. They crave the comfort of certainty." They want you to, Neo and Trinity, they want you to back in your pods. And you can just feel like that's the conversation the Wachowskis have been having for a decade. Someone at Warner Brothers, get back in the pod. Get back in the Matrix. I don't really care what it ends up being. So long as the classic Gremlins too, so long as there are Gremlins in these film canisters, all good. So I really liked that. That bit was quite quite sort of fun for me, I thought. That bit, the idea that they, they want you to back in your pods. The other three films were about you getting out, freeing yourself and freeing your minds and freeing people. Yeah, okay, that's all right. But that doesn't involve the Matrix, so just get back in the pods somehow, I don't care how, and go again. So ultimately the framing... You know, it being 60 years in the future, the world is a different place. That was good. I like that. They advanced the plot. They advanced time. And it's an interesting thing to watch. You know, what has changed and why? What were the consequences of Neo, um, you know, defeating Smith and the Matrix rebooting? Um, what happened in the immediate aftermath with, you know, the characters that did survive in this world? So that, that was quite good. That's always good. And then another thing I actually liked was just the context. Like, it confronts the idea of a sequel compromising the triumph of the original trilogy better than The Force Awakens did, just as an example, which, you know, a lot of their storytelling choices ignored the broader implication of well, the way you're telling this story actually means that the previous film 
doesn't really matter. The success that the previous film built to over the course of a three-film arc has just been completely blown apart by you know a number of the choices that you've made in making this movie. And I, th- I suppose with The Matrix Resurrections, Neo kind of says that. He says, what we achieved was for nothing because I'm back where I started. But you sort of think about it and the way the film works around that is, well, after that victory, the machines had Neo and his body. They had Trinity's body. So he, he yeah, we well, could have just been kept alive. This idea of, well, his journey, as far as he was aware, ended. But the way the film kind of explains or tries to explain or wants to explain that, no, we had some other plans for you and we decided we could actually bring you back to life. Again, another meta-commentary from the studio, which is a bit of fun. But I, but I sort of quite like that, how they didn't... They sort of owned that, yeah, what we're doing is sort of this idea that, oh, yeah, okay, well, we're still at war and things have changed, but not a great deal. Some things are better, but the war does rage on. So that was sort of an interesting commentary that, that I think there's a line that... Um, something about war, you know, when, when you're... Something about being at war... I should have written this down. That's just come to me. It's come to me in a stream of consciousness. Let's see if I can get back to it. Um, I like the scale too because it's funny. It's actually a smaller scale um, film than, than certainly the, the, the two sequels, Reloaded and Revolutions, and probably the first one, maybe on about the same size as the first one, but it's certainly not as big as Reloaded and Revolutions. And, you know, there's no big highway chase from Reloaded or the big blow-off Sentinel attack on Zion from Revolutions. And in that way, it kind of feels a bit like a throwback film because now sequels have to be bigger. <clears throat> they have to be they have to be larger, the scale, the threat, the conflict. It has to be just, like, tangibly bigger. Whereas here, it's all, you know, about the emotional conflict and the emotional stakes, which, like I said, is, is kind of like an old movie. That Those old movies used to be built on a bedrock of clear emotional stakes and clear... Um, emotional objectives. So I sort of like that it, it didn't have to be this giant, just absurdly, grotesquely large scale to kind of tell its story you know, effectively. Um, and then lastly, the idea that, that Neo had been given an avatar, <coughs> so he was obscured or hidden in the Matrix behind a really unflattering avatar which would occasionally glitch or flicker and reveal... Keanu Reeves as, you know, the Neo that we know. So I think it's fun that the film owned the idea of how complex a process like this is, and even though it's very impressive, it's not foolproof. He will glitch, and he will flicker, and he will occasionally, you know, reveal himself to be as he is, not how the machines want him to look, hidden away. So I sort of I sort of like that, you know, that there are bugs in the system. Um chicken shits now which is obviously negatives or, or downsides um re- revisiting the world is a, is a lot of fun but it's not sort of it's um actually sorry i missed a i missed a chicken salad which is an important chicken salad given what i was just about to say i like that it looked different so the desaturated green tinged matrix was really great because because it, it was sort of it was dehumanizing and artificial and that's why it worked, because it was sort of a bit off-putting and unsettling, the way, it, the way it looked and was presented. And that looked like a criticism of the Star Wars prequels, or the, they didn't look like Star Wars. 
and that was always dumb. Like, I was just stupid because, of course, they were going to look different because they were telling a different story in a different era. And how that story unfolds is going to inform why the next era looked the way it did, just in, in the same way that this Matrix is meant to be a little bit closer to reality, quite deliberately. It's, it's, not, it's, it's evolved, and the process has evolved, and the program has evolved, and the idea that it's like an update to an operating system, you know, they've learned from their mistake, this new Matrix feels a bit more homely, looks a bit more like it should, so I sort of like that, that it, 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 had, it had evolved its look and feel, which was really good. Um, so the chicken shit, sorry, was that as fun as resetting everything is and then setting up that world is, it sort of runs out of steam just as the film goes to set up a climax. It just doesn't quite stick the landing, I don't think. Having spent a really good, good amount of time setting everything up and, and being really um, sort of patient with that, that's sort of as much fun as the film gets. Then it kind of just as it as it then builds towards the end, it just just sort of runs out of steam, loses a bit of shape. Um, I could have completely missed this. So if I have missed this and the workaround was explained and explained well, absolutely get in touch with me to explain it to me. The idea that the machines and the analyst have hid Neo in the Matrix as a game designer called Thomas Anderson who's a worldwide celebrity on the back of these games based on the events of the trilogy is a bit weird I must be missing something because even with the Avatar disguising him as a bald old man surely he'd be the number one candidate to be the guy that people are looking for he's got the same name he's made a game about the events of those movies like, sh- surely, you'd be sitting there going, that's probably him, isn't it? That's probably Neo. If not, it's a program. But that's, that's got to be him, doesn't it? Um, you know, Keanu, is Keanu he's still a bit limited? I think I think he does okay with the material he's given, but he's not really given much scope to be particularly sort of charismatic. He's, he's sort of classic aloof Keanu and doesn't know what's happening. It's sort of like an older version of um, um, you know Bill and Ted, he's sort of it's, which is which is strange. I I really like Keanu, but here he was. Yeah, I don't know. He was wasn't going through the motions or anything like that. It was just the way he was being told to play the character was sort of it's not not great. I don't think um, Neil Patrick Harris is the film's primary villain. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit meh. You know, he's an obvious, albeit you know, less interesting stand-in for the architect. Um, I just, I'm just not 100% sure. I get that he, it's the old wolf in sheep's clothing and the one you least expect and, you know, giving the, the big bad threatening presence a less than intimidating veneer is, is the idea. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it quite worked. And Neil Patrick Harris is usually very good. Um, here, I'm not 100% sure if it works as well as the film needs it needs it to work. Um, but generally, just, you know, I suppose, in closing and in, in sort of wrapping it all up, um, I, I sort of liked that there was some evolution. I, I did like that. I was pleasantly surprised, due in large part to the way that the film presents the very idea of a sequel um, in that very meta way, as I said. You know, I think it's worth seeing as a curiosity, particularly if you like 
the series or you like what the series has had to say um, or, you know, more importantly, feel invested to see <clears throat> where the story has gone next. Um, but but I sort of liked, you know, the evolution there, that the Morpheus character was presented in a, in a really cool kind of way that he was designed as this sort of sentient-type program and, and, and had been evolving. I liked that the humans were being aided by some of the machines who themselves as an AI had evolved. Um, I liked that the way it kind of confronted the idea that no, well, the war was never going to end. You know, the architect said that to the Oracle at Revolutions, how long do you think the peace will last? And it's a wait and see. It'll last until the next one, till the next conflict, till the next war, till the next the next fight. Um, and I think that's an interesting just reality that we all grapple with, the idea that, yeah, look, the fight ends for a time and starts up again. Some of the combatants are the same. Some of them have inherited the battle. Some of them have grown weary of it. Some of them don't quite know why they're fighting it. They just know that they have to. Um, so in the end, it's, it's an interesting film. It's worthwhile giving your time to, if you have a relationship with the Matrix series. Um, it has some interesting things to say, has an interesting way to say them, um, and in the end, I think I do give it a thumbs up, uh, only because, like I said, expectations weren't sky high. I didn't go into the film expecting a life-changing experience. That would be unfair and unrealistic, um, but I certainly left the movie thinking, it could have been worse. That was actually not bad. You know, Had some ups and downs, but in the end of the day, it was actually not bad. So that's it for this episode of Too Long Don't Listen. A bit of a chat about the Matrix series, a bit of a chat about you know, its impact on, on popular culture and a chat about how perhaps some of those films have been unfairly judged and done by in recent years. Uh, certainly hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, definitely get in touch. Um, got any thoughts about what I've had to say today? Definitely get in touch. If you've seen the movie and have some thoughts or feedback about that, definitely get in touch. Um, certainly love to hear from you and love to hear what you've got to say. So for me, Sean Peter Budge, this has been Too Long Don't Listen, a chat about The Matrix Resurrections. We hope to catch you next time, whenever that is. Goodbye. <laughs>